It's from Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to, listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my, by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Please be seated. Happy Father's Day. Um, kids, if your dad's here, wish them Happy Father's Day. Treat them right. Moms get all the attention, but we only get dinner. Um, I just get something, but um, I, know, I don't know how you're going to celebrate today, but I hope you have a good one. Uh, but we're continuing here in our study of Matthew chapter 18, and as we look at this, we get to something very difficult, I think, in my opinion, for this church and um, for us, and trying to look at this in a perspective that helps us to, put it, to be more practical about things. But um, let me just quickly show you, if you haven't been with us in a while, to know where we're going with this. We're looking at all of chapter 18, although we're focused here on verses 15 uh, to verse 20. If you remember this, when we looked at verses 1 to 6, we talked about humility. That's the character of the kingdom. And if you're humble, it means that you're not thinking about yourself, but actually you're thinking about others. And you're thinking about what Jesus calls little children. And that's what he says in verses 1 to 6. And then we looked at verses 6 to 9. And we said that, you know, uh, as children, we also make sure that we don't stumble one another, uh, that we don't become a hindrance to a brother or a sister's faith. And, and so we don't want to be a reason that their progress in growing as a disciple is because of us, because of what we said or because of what we did. And so verses 6 to 9, we're thinking of others. You see that? Verses 1 to 6, humility, you're thinking of other. Verses 6 to 9, don't stumble your brother or sister, you're thinking of others. And then we looked at verse 10 to 14, and we saw how uh, God is like this shepherd, and he, he cares for all his sheep, but especially for that one sheep that wanders away. And so what does the shepherd do? He pursues them. The father, although he has 99 sheep at home, because one is kind of straying, he's thinking of the other. He's thinking of the one. And then last week, we looked at verses 15 to 20, and now the, the, the situation, the, the metaphors change. Now it's not just a child, it's not just a sheep, but it's a brother or a sister, in fact, that has sinned against you. And so verses 1 to 6, humility, think of others. Verses 6 to 9, don't stumble others. Think of others. Verses 10 to 14, think of that other person that's gone away. And then verse 15 to 20, your brother sins against you. What do you do? Your sister hurts you. you you've, been, you've been offended. You've been hurt. What do you do? And the principle here, what we're trying to say as we look at verses 15 to 20 is this. You're still thinking of the other, even as you are the offended. And I think he's teaching us here how we ought to relate in the context of really a family. And the family is, you tend to think of the others in your family. 
It's a basic teaching, right? It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that for the love of Christ, it controls us because we conclude this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was died and raised. And so following Jesus, to live for him, a very functional fruit of that is to think of others. That's the gospel. And if we don't understand this, if we don't understand verses 1 to 14, then we don't understand the gospel to its full extent. We don't understand what it means to live for him who for our sake was died and raised. And if we don't understand verses 1 to 14, then we won't understand verses 15 to 20. Because here in these verses, verses 15 to 20, he goes one step further and he says, furthermore, this is how I want you to relate to people who have hurt you, who have really sinned against you, done some wrong by you. Not just people wandering from the faith, not just little children who don't know any better, but people who have hurt you. So historically in the church, verses 15 to 20 is known as what we call church discipline. In the history of the church, the church has looked at these verses in order to understand how to deal with sin in the church. But if you just look at these verses, you're going to think that this sounds like a Spanish Inquisition, right? It almost sounds like a witch hunt. Someone sinned against you. Go get him, right? Get some people and then go get him. And then go get the church involved and go get him, right? And it it sounds kind of hard. And and so you won't appreciate or you won't understand these verses unless you understand verses 1 to 14. The humility, the the childlikeness, the, 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 the lost sheep, the shepherd, the thinking of others. Discipleship, uh, following Jesus, growing in faith, requires discipline, doesn't it? That's why the word sounds familiar, discipleship, discipline. They're related. And so this is what we're talking about here. And unless we understand or we don't understand verses 1 to 14, then we won't understand verses 15 to 20. And last week we looked at verse 15 very briefly and we said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And I was honest with you last week. These verses are very hard. I don't know if I believe that these things work, okay? This this process that I think Jesus is kind of laying out for us. But he says in verse 15, if your brother or sister sins against you, then you go tell him his or her fault between you and him alone, privately. And if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. So why do we go talk to someone about someone who's hurt us? Why do we do that? The goal here is not reconciliation, although that's very important. The goal is you're thinking of the other brother. You're thinking of the offender. You're thinking of the person and his relationship to God. You're thinking that you might gain back a brother or a sister. Your prime concern when there has been a serious sin against you is to also be concerned for the spiritual well-being of the one who did it. Why? 
because they are still brothers and sisters, and they still profess Christ in the church. And this is why I said this part, this first step, it's so hard, because who does this? Who thinks like this when they've been hurt or offended? It's unnatural. It's difficult, I know. But that's what being a follower of Jesus really means. I mean, think about this. Nobody does this. You might say, nobody does this. But, you know, did you think following Jesus, you were just going to do what everybody else does? Did you really think that following Jesus meant that you're not going to be any different from anybody else? It's different. Who does this? It sounds impossible, but I think Jesus is saying it's possible. Um, I read the story, true story, and you can look it up online. There was this school in South Carolina called Furman University. And uh, the chairman of the fine arts division was a doctor by the name of Dr. Dupree Rain. Okay? And uh, he was there for a long time, and then he finally retired. He has a daughter, and the daughter at the time had been married to her husband for some 30 years. 30 years. And then the husband, Dr. Furman's son-in-law, left his daughter right before the children were to leave the home. And he left her, when he left her, he left her in terrible financial condition. And then he remarried, not soon after, a woman whom he had an affair. And so it was an embarrassing thing for Dr. Rain, who had just retired from this prestigious position in this school. He had to come out of retirement in order to support his daughter and his children. And it was a humiliating experience for him, he says. And here's the thing. One year later after this, his son-in-law, right, the guy who left his daughter to be with someone he had an affair with, was diagnosed with inoperable brain cancer. Inoperable brain cancer. Now let's be very honest here. I know that if my mom had heard this story, I know what she would say. It's like a Korean drama. God is punishing him for doing something really bad. And I think, maybe she won't say it, but I think my mom would say, he is getting what he deserves for what he's done. And I'm going to be very honest. If it was my daughter, that brother or that brother or son-in-law, that person is dead to me. I know that's how I'm going to feel. I know that's what I'm going to do. But the first person at the side of this son-in-law's bed while he was in the hospital hospital, was Dr. Rain, his father-in-law. Despite the injury that had been done to him and to his daughter, how did he do this? He kept two things in mind, he said. He said, first, what his son-in-law had done was absolutely not right, and it deserved God's condemnation. But at the same time, the second thing he kept in mind was that he desired to see him recovered for the Lord. And so he listened and he went. He didn't simply pass over the sin. He didn't simply overlook it. But at the same time, he desired to see the sinner recovered. And we might think, you know what? 
that's very rare. Uh, it's, it's almost impossible, it, it, and it is. It, it's, it's hard, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. How do, we, how do we do this? John Calvin, 16th century reformer, knew, and he said this from the very beginning, he said this quote, by his own example, Christ now exhorts us to honor our weak and lowly brethren, for he descended from heaven to be their redeemer, to save not only them, but even the dead and those who are lost. And it is unworthy to reject in our pride those for whom the Son of God did so much. For they are not to be assessed according to their own virtues, but according to the grace of Christ. You hear what even the 16th century guy said? He said, do you hear this? A fellow disciple, a brother or a sister, even a sinful one, is not to be assessed in accordance to his or her own virtues or lack thereof, but according to the grace of Christ. And so we ought to desire to see the lost recovered. Okay? I don't know what you think about that, but let me move on here as we look at verse 16. Here's the second step. Jesus says, If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so the next thing we learn is this. Jesus is assuming that maybe you've tried on your own to, to address the issue, but the other person is not really going to listen, is not listening. And so the next thing that Jesus says, which is, I think, even more crazy, is that he says, take two or three witnesses and go and speak to him again so that the things that you've seen may be confirmed. I would... Who does this, right? And, and here's the reason I think this do, is, is, doesn't work, or, or it's hard to do. First, last, last week we saw most of us are non-confrontational, okay? So it, it's not going to really happen. But secondly, I'm being cynical, but secondly, notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, hey, if someone's wronged you, take two or three of your best friends and then go beat them up, right? And oftentimes that's what I want to do. That's what we want to do. He doesn't even use the word friends. What's the word that he uses? He uses the word witness. Witness. Someone to see. Why? Just had an eye checkup not too long ago, and, you know, uh, you know they give you the eye test, and you read the letters off the wall, and, and you know, I, I, I try really hard to read them all because I don't want my eyes to get worse. I don't want my prescription to get um, or to increase, and so I don't, I don't care what I see there, I go in there confident. Okay. Can you read this? Yeah, I can read that. That's a, it's an E, A, C, B, D, E, F, right? And then he goes down all the way to the list, and you know what? Uh, I'm pretty sure I can read the last line, so I do it, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and, you know, and I do it with confidence, and I said, I got it all right. Doc, didn't I get it all right? And he said, no, you, you missed the last four letters. Here's the thing about sin. When you talk about sin, it's not just something that you've done wrong. It's not something bad. I mean, it is, but it's not just. Part of being a sinner means as long as you're a sinner, there will always be a little bit of blindness. Always. No matter how clearly you think you are, 
no matter how right you think you are, how well you think you see, as long as there's a little bit of sin in your life, there will always be a little bit of blindness. Maybe not just what you see, but the way you interpret also what you see. And what this means is that if you think you're going to evaluate a person or a situation and interpret it an action in a word without sin, you're going to be very mistaken. There will always be blindness. You might think you have 20-20 vision when you see something that's been done wrong, but the reality is God is saying it's possible you're missing a few letters. And it's arrogant to say so. And it takes humility to admit possibly that you haven't seen all the picture. And so Jesus foresees a circumstance where the sinner, the offender, will not see his sin, will not admit to it, will not, will not come back from it. He will not see his wrong, even after you go speak to him. But he also suggests that you also could be wrong. That you also could be mistaken or misinformed that there's still a little blindness in you. So he says, do this. Go and take two witnesses to confirm the situation. Here's why I think it doesn't work. Oftentimes when we're sinned against, when someone's done wrong to me, what I want is support, and rightly so, okay, rightly so. But sometimes when I say support, what I mean is I want people on my side because I've already drawn a line between me and this person. So it's me against this person, and my support are people, my guys, my friends, who are on my side. And, and maybe that's what we want. We want people who are going to be on our side, who are going to go along with you and beat the person who has offended you, whatever that is. Now, of course, nobody was really here going to do this because you're too passive-aggressive, and so what you're going to do is just next time you see the guy, you're just going to give him a dirty look, right? Uh, that, that might be the extent of it. Here's what I want you to know. Wanting to people to be on your side is not wrong. But to be on your side is not just to provide comfort and care and empathy in your pain and struggle and even some advice. But to be on your side, to really be on your side, is also to help provide clarity and even a best course of action to affirm what is right and what is good and what is best for your sake. And how do you determine that? Because the problem with us is that our ethics is very screwed up. We have what we call situational ethics. Is this right or is this wrong? Well, it kind of depends on the situation. And many of us, whether we admit this or not, we have relational ethics. Is this right or is this wrong? Well, it kind of depends on who it is. Let me give you an example. You know, if I see kids on the street acting like hoodlums, you know, acting stupid on the street, riding their bikes, and, and you know, I want to run them over. You know, I, you know I, I shouldn't say that. I don't want to run them over, you know. But, you know, you get upset. You know, and it's like these punks, man. What, what's the, what are their parents doing, you know? And, and I feel this way. But if it's my own kid who is doing the exact same thing, two things happen. I get more upset because I care. Or 
I kind of overlook it. It depends on the person. Relational ethics. And I think what we're bringing in, what Jesus is trying to do is say, we need someone to give us a little bit of objectivity, a little bit of non-involvement, a little bit of, I don't have a horse in this race. Here's what I see. Just in case there's a better way to handle it or there's a little blindness that I need to help being seen. Some people, we're so morally lax today. We just shrug our shoulders at what's wrong or right. But especially with someone we like. When someone we love falls into a grievous sin, even a professing Christian, we kind of shrug our shoulders and say, well, you know, it's no big deal. Everybody does that today. Everybody lies today. Everybody cheats on their income taxes today. Everybody does this in business today. Everybody uses that kind of language today. And we could go on and on and on giving examples. And we just sort of shrug our shoulders and say, we think, well, it's not a real big deal until it happens to you. Until you're on the receiving end of it. Then it becomes a little different because the same people can be so angry then and so offended by the same exact wickedness that has occurred because it happened to them or to someone that they really love. And there's no side in view to recover the offender. Here's what I'm talking about. This is why it's hard. Sometimes we care about the person more than we care about what's right. And when you do that, you easily ignore the wrong. You excuse it or you overlook it. But sometimes we care about what's right more than we care about the person. And when you do that, you become judgmental, critical. And so we need people on our side to help us to see Clearly, And that's what I think is the principle behind verse 16. So get a couple of witnesses, help them to see. Okay? It's hard, isn't it? But the third and last point is this. 17, verse 17. This is what Jesus says. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, follow progress. Verse 15. Do it privately between two brothers or two sisters or brother and sister. Verse 16. Between members. And now in verse 17, between the church. And you notice then there's an increasing severity in what's going on here as it gets harder and harder and deeper and deeper. And the thing we've got to ask is this, what exactly is the sin that we're talking about here that it goes this far? And Jesus doesn't really say, but you know one thing or a couple things. By the time you get to verse 17, you know it's serious enough to get to the point. And secondly, it's persistent. He refuses to listen. He refuses to listen. And he refuses to listen again and again and again. And so whatever the sin is, it, it, it's a danger. It's a danger to the self. It's a danger to another. And maybe even in the church. And here in verse 17, Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to even members of the church, he says what? Tell it to the church. What does that mean? Tell it to the church. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean send out a mass email to everybody and let them know what they did. 
okay? It doesn't mean just let everyone in the church, as many people as you can, to, to, that's not what it means. Because the verse right after, verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That comes from Matthew chapter 16, just two chapters before, when he told this to Peter and the apostles. Who are they? The leaders of the church. When Jesus says, tell it to the church, he's talking about its leaders. In our case, the elders of the church, who, on behalf of the church, deal with the situation to attempt to bring some resolution. I'm the pastor, but I'm just one of the elders. Did you know we have many more elders in the church? You've got Pastor James. Zay, stand up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we have elders in the church. Okay? And so let me just address the elders, including myself. This is part of our job. And we'll talk about this more later not today, but this is what we do, part of what we do. It's not just to preside. It's not just to uh, you know, do meetings. It's to care for the group to make sure that this doesn't get this far. So tell it to the church, the elders, the leadership. Okay? Now don't worry. Elder or not, this is not going to happen. All right? It's hard to do. You know why? Because you don't talk to your elders. Some of you don't even know who you, the elders are. You come to me, sometimes directly. Skip verse 15, 16, just go to PF, right? You come to me. And I'm going to be very honest. I do the best I can. I'm just a guy. I'm one guy, a sinful guy, who's trying to live by God's grace. And what I'm here to tell you right now, right? You've got four or five other guys available. They're not as good looking as I am. They're not as smart as I am, okay? But they've been called to do this work. I just want to throw that out. But you know why it's not going to work? It's not because of our elders. For whatever reason, we don't talk to them. But by the time it gets there, things are too late anyway. And yet, on a deeper level, in our culture, we just don't trust elders, pastors. We don't, we don't trust leadership today. We don't trust authority. We live in a current culture where authority has been abused, misused, misapplied. In the past few years, I don't know how many stories on the news or media where I see even pastors of, of, of good churches falling down, misusing, abusing their authority. It, it happens all the time. And after all, you see all of this and you think to yourself, after all, these guys, these leaders, they're just a bunch of guys and they're sinners just like me. And so we're suspicious against authority. And so to get this far, we, we don't even get there. Why? Because we don't even want to deal with them because we don't trust that we could handle it. Okay? Think about that. And so in verse 17, Jesus says that there's a situation here now that the sinful brother or the offender is not even going to listen to the leaders of the church. Okay? 
So whatever this issue is, it's persistent, it's stubborn, it's rebellious, it, it, it refuses to listen to that. And then Jesus goes to the final step and he says, if he doesn't even listen to them, treat the person as a Gentile and a tax collector. What does that mean? We're talking of Jewish terms. This is a Jewish community. And the one thing the Jewish community don't consider in family is a Gentile, non-Jewish, and also a tax collector, a betrayer. What are we talking about here? You may know the word excommunication. I don't like using the word, okay, because it just sounds too definite. But to treat someone as a tax collector or a Gentile is to say, we can't accept you as a part of the family. It doesn't mean the person can't come to church. It doesn't mean the person uh, should be hated. It just means that because of its persistent rebelliousness and the, the danger it might occur to the, to the others or to the church, we can't see you as this way. And it might seem harsh to treat someone who was a brother or a sister and now treat them as a, a non-brother or a non-sister. But I want you to remember verses 1 to 14. Even in this situation, what is the goal? What is the attitude towards non-brothers and sisters? We want them to be brothers and sisters. We want non-brothers and non-sisters to become brothers and sisters in the church. And this is probably an extreme way to think about it. Do you see how difficult this is? This is the last thing he says. Do you see, understand why I, I, I say it, it's hard for me to believe the process because it just, I don't see it happening. It doesn't seem to work. It's not practical in some ways. Uh, I think it's especially hard to follow, especially in our times. Hard to do. And part of the reason I don't believe it's going to work is because you're not going to do it. We're not going to do it easily. Unless, if you look at verse 20, maybe Jesus promises us this. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. I am there in their midst. Jesus is just telling us again that when things are hard to do, he is spiritually present. He is spiritually present. Because here, here's a guy who knew what was was what was going to happen? Here's a guy who people gossiped about. They slandered. They bore false witness. Then they criminalized him. They demonized him. Then they hurt and wounded him. They cursed him. And then they killed him on a cross. If that was you, if, if that was me, this is my response. If I'm on the cross, being a victim of someone's sin against me, I'm praying to God, and I'm going to say, God, judge them now. Vengeance. Kill them. Punish them. Do something now. Bring down your thunder. Bring down the earthquakes. Wipe them out. I want vengeance. That's what I would have done. And here's what I want to say. Guess what? God is not opposed necessarily to that feeling of vengeance that you and I have once in a while. God is not against vengeance. The difference is when you look at the Old Testament, there's a lot of vengeance on God's part going on. But the difference is God says, 
The vengeance is mine. It's my job, not yours. But the thing is, this God of vengeance, when you look at the New Testament, here's his son, Jesus Christ, a victim of all this injustice and sin, all the people, all the wrong that's done to him. He's on the cross, and what does he say? He doesn't say, God, vengeance. He says, God, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Think about this. Who killed Jesus? It wasn't the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. It's the Father. The Father kills his son. God doesn't just overlook. He says, it's okay. He doesn't say that. He doesn't ignore. He's not excusing the wrong. He's a God of vengeance. He's going to do something about it. And what he does is he kills his only son, crucifies him wipes him out, takes out his righteous and holy vengeance for the sins committed against him on his only son. Why? For the sake of those such as us who are the offenders. For the sake of his little children. For the sake of his sheep. For the sake of his family, brothers and sisters who hurt each other, wound each other, curse each other, he paid the price. God didn't just overlook sin, right? But he did something about it to save them and to recover them. He didn't judge them. He took the judgment, but he gave them mercy and forgiveness. The Father forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And guess what Jesus talks about right after this passage? Forgiveness. And here in our passage, Jesus gives us very, something very hard to do, almost impossible. Yet this is what he did for us. And it's the same Jesus who knows how hard it's going to be for us. And so he promises us in verse 20, where two or three are gathered, there will I be. I promise to be there. To do those difficult things. And so we pray. We need to pray. Before we confront, before we get into it, we need to pray that we would follow Jesus and do as he did. Ask for wisdom and patience, forbearance and strength to be faithful throughout the whole process. Okay? Let me just end with this. Just one practical thought, okay? Whatever you think about this. We're talking about church discipline, but did you notice this whole chapter is about discipline? About seeking the interests of the other? Right? In verses 1 to 14, that's all he did. In verses 1 to 6, he deals with self-discipline. I need to conduct myself for the sake of somebody else. Self-discipline. Then you look at verse 16, it's mutual discipline. What do brothers do with brothers when they're at odds? And then you get to verse 17, it deals with church discipline. So this whole chapter is about following Jesus, and it's about discipline, from self-discipline to mutual discipline, and now to church discipline. And I'm not sure what you think about the process that Jesus seems to be laying out. I think it's a general, broad stroke kind of idea uh, to things. I I don't know, but it's what we have to work with. But even if you don't like it and you're not sure about it, here's one thing I know for sure. This whole chapter is really about mutual accountability. This whole chapter is about thinking yourself as a part of a family of faith. You're not overlooking the sin, what's wrong, but you're pursuing also the sinner out of concern. 
How do I balance this? And most of us, we swing one way or the other. We're either really forgiving and we just never raise the spiritual concern with another person, or on the other hand, we're ready to bring down the hammer in anger and vengeance. Here's at least, the very least, where we as a church need to work on, where we need to grow and where we need to do. Here's this. Listen carefully. And this is what we can talk about the rest of the summer. If you don't like the process, the bottom line here is this. You and I need relationships where we have given this person permission to speak into our lives and to tell us when we're wrong or when we're off track. That, I think, is the center of this passage. We need relationships, whether it's one person or two people or a few people, whatever the case is, a relationship where you have given someone permission, someone you trust, someone you know that cares about, you've given that person permission to speak into your lives, to tell you even when you're wrong that you are wrong. Someone you trust, someone without fear of judgment, someone who won't just be on your side, but always tell you not only that they're on your side, not that you're always right, but sometimes they'll tell you that's not right. We need relationships with someone that you could hear that and you could take that. Because you know that someone has your best interest in mind. And here's the most important part. You and I need a relationship where we have someone who could also remind you of your faith. A fellow disciple who tells another fellow disciple, this is hard, but let's trust in God. What does he want from us in this hard situation? Do you have someone like that? Do you have someone where not only you could just say whatever you want to say without fear of condemnation or judgment, but also someone who cares enough to say, hey, you know what, that might be a little off track and I'm concerned for you. Do you have, really have someone like that? Do you have someone in your life that could tell you, hey, we're both Christians here. Let me give you what a reminder. This is what I think God wants. Do you, do you have anyone like that in your life? And this is where I think we need the most. You've got a lot of friends. You're good at hanging out with people. You say a lot of things. You do a lot of things. Sometimes you hear things you don't want to hear, so you don't want to hang out with them. Sometimes you, you want to hear something that you never hear, and so you don't want to hang out with them. And all you do is talk about food and friends and movies, and you know, and maybe once in a while you share a problem, and all you're getting is, well, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do, do that. We need a faith-based relationship. that says, here's what I want you to think about, because this is what I know God wants me to think about. Do you have someone like that in your life? And that's where we need to work on, building, forging, growing friendships this way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your patience and mercy. Lord, um, 
we here in what is currently the modern times look back and sometimes the things we hear and read in your Bible, which sounds so removed and far away from us, not just in time and space, but, but culturally and, and uh, socially in every way, uh, have a difficulty connecting what you say in the word to what we do and experience here in our life. Uh, we pray for wisdom to navigate this. We, we, we pray for uh, clarity. We pray for uh, patience and mercy to, to understand what you're asking about us, to know, Lord, that, that, that if we have confessed you, that, that we indeed are called to follow you. And, and that doesn't just happen, Lord, in a vacuum. It, it doesn't happen individually. It needs to happen communally. And you've given us some serious and hard things to think about for discipleship, for growing. Not only for ourselves, but as we interact with others, for, for the others around us as well, for the church as a whole. Lord, this is an idea, a, a plan that you may have had from the very beginning, and yet it's so, sometimes so difficult to really see. And so we realize that what you ask cannot be done in our own strength. It's not natural. It's supernatural to think in the opposite of what we feel, in the opposite of what the world says. It's, it's something that requires your work in our hearts and minds. And so we ask you, Lord, by the faith that you've given to each and every one of us, as small as it might be, Give us the strength and the wisdom and the power to obey and to do and to live for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.